Welcome to the historic Ocean House, a luxurious hotel that pays homage to New England's golden age of hospitality. With timeless elegance and renewed civility, this treasured resort is the setting for our special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series. Each program features nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation, hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. You'll hear fascinating conversations with exceptional authors like Chloe Milos, Avery Carpenter, Patty Callahan-Henry, Victoria Christopher-Murray, Kitty Curick, and more. WCRI is pleased to partner with the Ocean House to present this ongoing series, which brings you the best and the brightest of the literary world. Now, let's take you to the Ocean House. We are so delighted that we have all of you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Lauren Willig is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of more than 20 works of historical fiction, including Band of Sisters, The Summer Country, The English Wife, the Rita Award-winning Pink Carnation series, and four novels co-written with Beatrice Williams and Karen White, also known as Team W. Her books have been translated into over 20 languages, picked for Book of the Month Club, awarded the Rita Booksellers Best and Golden Leaf Awards, and chosen for the American Library Association's annual list of the best genre fiction. An alumna of Yale University, she has a graduate degree in history from Harvard and a JD from Harvard Law School. She lives in New York City with her husband, two young children, and vast quantities of coffee. <laughs> Don't we all? And Deborah Goodrich Royce's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Reef Road hit Publishers Weekly's bestseller list, Good Morning America's Top 15, and was an Indie Next pick by the American Booksellers Association for January 2023. Ruby Falls won the Zibby Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021. I can vouch for that. It's juicy. And Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's Best Of list in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax Films, developing Emma and early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, Ocean House Hotel, Deer Mountain Inn, the United Theater, Savoy Bookshop and Cafe, and numerous Main Street revitalization projects in Rhode Island and the Catskills. She also serves on the governing and advisory boards of the American Film Institute, Avon Theater, Greenwich International Film Festival, New York Botanical Garden, Greenwich Historical Society, Preservation Society of Newport, Preservation Foundation of Palm Beach, and the Prasad Project. Deborah holds a bachelor's degree in modern foreign languages and an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Lake Erie College. And without further ado, Deborah Goodrich Royce and Lauren Willig. Thank you, Stephanie. Hello, everyone. Hello, Lauren. Thank Hello, you Deborah. for coming from Boston. Oh, I and am so delighted to be here. And I am so beyond honored to get to kick off the new summer series. Well, it's a whole new thing now that we're doing this radio tie-in. So it's kind of cool. You're all going to be on the radio. So welcome back, everyone. We are so glad to be back doing this. And as Stephanie said, we have a lot of people this year. And you're number one. And I think we are ending the year with the wonderful Luann Rice, who's sitting up front, and you have a new book coming out in December, right? So I'm very excited about that. Okay, my dear, tell us, tell everybody here a little bit, what is your pitch of Two Wars in a Wedding? My pitch for Two Wars in a Wedding is that it's not false advertising. There are actually 
two wars and a wedding in this book. And they're not the wars anyone might think they are. This is not a World War II book. These wars are two incredibly well-known and well-studied conflicts, the Greco-Turkish War of 1897 mm -hmm. and the Spanish-American War, um, Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. It's about a young Smith alumna who goes off to Greece determined to be an archeologist, but is told by the boys at the American School in Athens that women can't excavate. It's too much for your, our delicate constitutions. And so in a fit of pique, she takes a Red Cross training class and gets herself sent to the front lines of the Greco-Turkish War. And something happens, something happens in the Greco-Turkish War that leads her to volunteer with Clara Barton and the Red Cross to go to Cuba with Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. And so that's my elevator pitch. Right. It's such a wonderful book. But I have to dive in. Why those two wars? Why that period of the 1890s? What led you into that? I wish I could claim that I just have a bizarre passion for the most obscure wars I could find. But the truth is, I didn't set out to find the Greco-Turkish War. The Greco-Turkish War found me. It was a rabbit hole that led to another rabbit hole. So years ago, back in, I think it was 2019, Beatrice and Karen and I, Team W, were working on a book called All the Ways We Said Goodbye, set during three quiet time periods in French history, World War I, World War II, and the <laughs> 1960s. Because, <laughs> yeah, we like that sort of placid domestic stuff. And meanwhile, so for the World War I portion, we needed to know whether a certain type of Christmas cake was being served in Picardy under the German occupation in 1915. Because these are the tiny details that drive writers crazy. And if you get it wrong, there will be that one person who will follow you the rest of your life. There will be. Yes. And, and they'll let you and everybody else know you got that wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Popping up in the back of the room, what about the cake? <laughs> anyway, so we were desperately searching for this Christmas cake, and I was Googling Christmas, World War I, Picardy, and I did not find the cake. But I did find a memoir by a Smith alumna talking about throwing Christmas parties for villagers right behind the front lines in 1917. And I thought, this is insane. This has to be a joke or fiction. So of course, I did what any good procrastinating author would do. <laughs> I dropped everything and I read the memoir and I realized it was real. There was a group of Smithies in the Psalm and they had been organized by an eccentric, charismatic, groundbreaking alumna, a woman named Harriet Boyd Hawes, who was an archeologist, humanitarian, and occasional war nurse, who decided that there was this humanitarian crisis in France in 1917, where German, the Germans had deliberately decimated villages and then left the villagers to starve, thinking it would weaken the French war effort. And Harriet Boyd Hawes basically said, not so fast. We have a solution for this, and that solution is American college women. And she got together a group of 18 Smithies. She came up with this idea in April of 1917. And by August, she had 18 Smithies and three trucks on a boat bound for France. And she did it, she pulled it off, but she was a very divisive, um, very, um, some people adored her and her attitude of, you're a smart woman, you can figure this out. Here, let's go in a war zone and fix everything. And some people thought she was criminally irresponsible. And for those of you who read Band of Sisters, which is the book I wrote based on these Smithies, you'll know, it's not a big spoiler, this happens early in the book, she winds up getting voted out as their director. 
but I became increasingly fascinated by this woman who came up with this crazy and yet amazing idea of dropping Smithies into a war zone. And I wanted to know what gave her the idea, what shaped her. So I started reading about Harriet Boyd Hawes, and I realized her own youth had been even more incredible than the war zone she led these Smithies into, that she, as a young woman, had gone off from Smith to study archaeology and instead found herself enmeshed in two separate wars. And so that's why, but what really interested me was, so there's this charming biography of her written by her daughter called Born to Rebel, and there's a ton on the Greco-Turkish <laughs> War in there, and a ton on all sorts of other stuff, but one paragraph about the Spanish-American War. And I thought, wait, what isn't she talking about? What is she hiding? What happened in the Spanish-American War that she doesn't want us to know? And I was also really intrigued because, so she does, spoiler, she does eventually become an archeologist. She funds her own dig. She goes back to Greece. She digs up this bit of Crete and you know, makes major discoveries and proves that women can excavate. But in that intermediate time between the Greco-Turkish War and this major dig she funds, she goes and joins Clara Barton. And I thought, okay, something happened. Something drove her there. And there's something that she is not talking about. And so two wars and a wedding is my answer to the question of why did she go to Cuba and what happened there? So let's talk mm -hmm. about that. So you're really hitting at the core of historical fiction. So mm -hmm. there is this genesis really in truth and fact. These things really happened. There was the yes. real person. She was in these places. How do you decide what you're going to fill in and where? And are, are there boundaries to that? Or how far can you go? That's a brilliant question. I think it really depends on the individual book and the source space available. I mean, with Band of Sisters, I didn't have to do any filling in because the archivists at Smith College had digitized thousands of pages of the Smithies' letters home from the Somme for me. So it was really, wow. it was, oh, I mean, this is the cache of papers every historian or historical novelist dreams about because not only did I have the day-to-day -day details of their life in France, including all sorts of stuff they were not supposed to be telling. Like, I wandered into this, you know, this uh, uh, general's office, and there were these maps on the wall, and here's where the pins were. And, you know, it's, it's amazing they didn't run afoul of the censors. So I had not only all these details, I had 18 different viewpoints on the same event, so I could triangulate and figure out what some people weren't saying, and all sorts of juicy gossip about who wasn't speaking to whom, who snuck boys into her barrack, and all that sort of thing. But so for that book, it was a question of what do I leave out? What are the key events that give the flavor of their life in France without overloading it with information? Mm -hmm. And the other end of the spectrum, I wrote a book called The Summer Country, set in colonial Barbados about an enslaved woman and the a rising of enslaved people in 1816. And there are very few documents remaining written by enslaved women. We have a few letters, but as you can imagine, they were written under conditions that don't necessarily lead to candor. So with that one, it was all about triangulating and filling in the absences, finding the secondary sources or primary sources and trying to figure out responsibly how to weave together the gaps. 
So to drill down a little bit more mm -hmm. on that, is there sort of the historical fiction police, like the person who's going to nab you on the cake, yes. are they going to nab you on? So the enslaved woman mm -hmm. and, and the revolt, was it a successful revolt? Um, no. <laughs> oh. It was put down. It's very a very famous revolt. Um, I cannot pronounce this. It's, I think it's pronounced Bussey's Rebellion. But it's spelled B-U-S-S-A. Um, but no, it was, in fact, put down. So, but do people mm -hmm. come in and say, you can't do this, or I resent this, or, or this is too far? Or? Yeah, that, that is a very interesting question. I was very worried about that one, because I am not from the Caribbean, as you can probably tell. Um, and I was worried of being accused of appropriating other yeah. people's experiences, but I think it helps that it was so long ago. I would not dare write something set in contemporary Barbados. I just am not steeped in that culture. But none of us have lived 200 years ago. And I used to be a historian, and I have a lot of friends who are still historians. Actually, the good thing was I used to run the Harvard History Department Social Club. So I have a lot of embarrassing pictures of people in compromising situations. <laughs> and they're now all professors' places. So when I get into these research tangles, and with the summer country, I was really nervous about getting it right. And I called up a bunch of these friends and said, who can you introduce me to who works in this field? So I was able to speak to the scholars who were doing the cutting edge work on these topics. And I tried to cover my bases as best I can. But it's always, you're always nervous that sure. maybe you missed something or that you know, there was a horrifying story a few years ago of a woman who wrote a nonfiction book. And after it went to press, discovered she had misunderstood a key legal term and her entire premise was flawed. And she found this out on the air. That's Ooh. the sort of thing that terrifies me. And actually, sorry, while I'm going, I, I'll admit the book I am working on right now, it's, it's interesting that you ask this because I am wrestling with this. Because the book I'm working on right now is the first thing I've written where all the people are real people and everything in it actually happened. It's America's first fully recorded murder trial, the Manhattan Well murder of 1800, where a young woman was found strangled in the Manhattan Well, and a young man who roomed at her Quaker cousin's boarding house was accused of seducing and strangling her and dumping her in the well. He had an influential older brother who hired the best legal team he could find, a man named Brockholz Livingston, Aaron Burr, and... Alexander Hamilton. Wow. So you've got Burr and Hamilton working for the defense together just months before the disputed New York elections of April 1800 when they tear each other to shreds. And this really happened. But the crazy thing is, some of the stuff is really well documented. Other bits, we have these weird gaps. Like no one, I mean, there's a rumor, a legend that has been codified, it, codified into fact that Hamilton took this case because he owed um, Ezra Weeks, the accused man's older brother, money for being his contractor for the Grange, the country home he built for his wife, Eliza. The problem is, the Grange, he doesn't hire an architect till a year after the trial. He hasn't even bought the land the house was going to be built on. He didn't owe this man money. This is all in the future, but it's a story people told, and it's been passed down unreflectingly. Mm -hmm. And so I'm saying they're saying, oh, drat. We don't actually really know why Hamilton chose to represent Levi Weeks 
And so I have theories about it based on his character and what was going on at the time, but I have no documentary evidence whatsoever. And he left no notes about the case at all. And so there's a lot of, I mean, I know things he did. I know he was running. So back then, you didn't have, it's not like, well, I call this book Law and Order 1800. <laughs> but the, the issue was you've got, you don't have the order side. There wasn't a police force as we know it. And the lawyers did all their own detective work. So I know Hamilton was running around town with his friend Richard Harrison questioning people. But I only know that because we have various signed depositions with dates on them. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way I'm able to try to figure out what he was doing and who he was speaking to. But I'm terrified someone will pop up after I write this book and say, well, we all know the real reason Hamilton took this case was. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. Ocean House, located on the scenic Atlantic Ocean in historic Watch Hill, is one of only 14 triple five-star resorts in the world with superb guest accommodations, a world-class spa, dining, and events. Ocean House is once again hosting one of their most popular events, the Ocean House Author Series with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. These informative and entertaining sessions feature best-selling authors and highly acclaimed writers to showcase their latest novels and works. Attendance includes a signed copy of the featured book, insightful conversation, as well as complimentary wine and delicious bites. Held at the breathtaking Ocean House, events take place evenings from 5 to 7 p.m. For information and reservations, Go to OceanHouseEvents.com. That's OceanHouseEvents.com. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. So talk to us a bit about your process. So it sounds to me like the... Well, I, I want to go from the genesis of the idea, which sounds like it generally comes from a particular person uh, or story. And then how long do you spend researching? When do you know you've researched enough to start writing? Do you write simultaneously? How do you do it? Well, years ago, when I was a teenager, and as all teenagers do, I had a subscription to the Writer magazine. There was an article by John Jakes, you know, the, who just died this month. It's so sad, you know, the eminent, historical fiction writer, he wrote North and South, the one with Patrick Swayze. Um, yeah, yes, so good. But anyway, so John Jakes wrote an article about his process where he said that he spent a full year researching before he started writing a book. He wouldn't take notes, he wouldn't draft, he would just read everything he could get his hands on and let it sink in. Wow. And I was really struck by that. And that's what I've tried to do ever since. I never, I'd never have a full year to research. Um, but I always try to spend at least a few months doing nothing but reading. And I find that changes the shape of the books. Um, for example, with Two Wars and a Wedding, the book ended entirely differently than I had originally thought it would when I was first exploring the topic because of a bunch of articles a librarian friend sent me about a woman who was, became known as the Angel of the Seneca. And I read her story, I was like, oh my goodness, now I know what the end of the book is. 
And that's happened to me with a lot of the books is that the history, it's, it's a phase in which the book is sort of like silly putty in my head. You can sort of squeeze it and shape it. And the historical research, you know, in, it infuses the story and changes the shape. We'll talk a little bit mm -hmm. about the not taking notes. Do you feel that like that takes you too far? You're kind of assuming what direction you'll go in by taking mm -hmm. notes? Talk about that. Well, you know, I always admire those authors who talk about the systems they have right. for keeping track of their books, and they throw around these names of programs. Um, my program is notebook and sheets of loose leaf paper, and I will scribble bits and pieces right. of things down. But the thing is, half the time, I either don't consult those notes again, or when I look at them, I can't read my own handwriting, <laughs> or I'm trying to figure out what on earth I meant by them. What I found is that there's a process of winnowing mm -hmm. where First of all, you, you know, when you're researching a book, often you're reading about the same incidents over and over and over. And so a lot of the key events become embedded in your head. It's like studying for an exam, where you're memorizing the material without even meaning to. But the things I forget are the things that are clearly not meant to be in the book, because they weren't important enough to stay. Um, this book, the Hamilton book I'm working on right now, is a little bit different, because since it's all real, I'm having to take notes about what ages people's children were and things like that because I can't just make it up the way I would with my fictional characters. Um, but yes, I find, um, goodness, where was I going with this? What was the question? Well, the process <laughs> for, for all the research process uh -huh, leading yes. to the writing process. Yes, and the not taking notes. Right. Um, yes. So, I mean, I am every copy editor's nightmare because I find I often have continuity errors, not with historical facts. For, with right. historical facts, I'm very careful, but with my made-up characters, often I'll change things about them while I'm writing them, and they'll have these awkward little notes from the copy editor in the corner saying, but you know, wasn't she 26 two pages ago? Why is she 27 now? Or it was March, now it's April, and then I have to go through and reconcile all of it. So this book exists in a dual timeline, and I love dual timelines, but the timelines are not terribly far apart, which is intriguing. Often, you know, dual timelines you're reading, you know, this, this happened in World War I, and it happened in World War II, and we're tying that together. Talk a little bit about how you construct dual timelines. Do you write each timeline separately and then put it together, or do you write as the reader reads, or... How do you do that? I write as the reader reads. Mm -hmm. So everything is written exactly in the order in which you're reading it. Um, my good friend Beatrice Williams also writes dual timeline books, and she writes her timeline separately. And I remember years ago having coffee with Beatrice. This must have been about a decade ago. And she's like, no, no, you have to try it. It's so much faster when you write the timeline separately. And I went home and I tried to do it. I tried to write all of one narrative and all of the other, and I just couldn't. It's not the way my brain works. Because to me, it's a puzzle box. I think that's part of the attraction of the dual timeline, is that even when the story itself is not a mystery, the mystery is how do the pieces of the story, how do the past and the present fit together and intertwine? And so that's why I write it back and forth and back and forth, because I'm learning with my characters how these pieces are fitting together and what the overlaps and the connections are. I do exactly what you do. And I feel, I always thought, well, maybe it was because I was on a soap opera and I'm a fan mm -hmm. of the cliffhanger. You know, every episode of a soap opera ends with a kind of da 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 da, and you people staring at each other in a meaningful way. But I think 
There huh. is something about knowing where you're ending a chapter that tees you up for where you're beginning the next chapter. And I don't know if you've ever had to rearrange things, mm -hmm. but if you rearrange chapters, you can't just pull them apart and stick them in different places. The whole thing has to be re-edited. Exactly, and, and you wind yeah. up basically rewriting all of it because you're you reweaving re everything. Yeah, and, and revelations are made, I think, all the more meaningful if you write it as the reader reads it. Yes, because I think every book is a journey of discovery. Mm -hmm. And you are learning with the, your characters and with the reader as you write the book. I mean, there are those well-organized authors who outline everything and actually know what's going to happen. But I'm very character-driven. And so mm -hmm. I find my characters surprise me all the time. And so part of the fun of it is I'm having the same experience you as the reader has. Half the time, I don't know what's going on until I sit down to write it. I heard a new way mm. of expressing it. I was being interviewed uh, by a fellow on the radio. And most people ask you if you are a plotter or a pantser. Do you plot it all out or fly by the seat of your mm -hmm. pants? And those are very extreme choices. And this fellow said it in a new way to me anyway. He said, do you chart your books with a map or with a compass? Oh. And I thought, ah, those are subtler distinctions. And that makes a lot of sense. And I use sense. a compass. Same here. Not, not a full map, but I'm not just stumbling either. I use a compass and as far as I can see along the horizon. Right. So I actually, I found what I do, my own weird method that works for me, is I plot five chapters ahead. And so I always, I re-outline after every chapter I finish, always moving a little bit further, because as I get to know the characters better, as the ship moves forward, I can see a little bit farther. And some, usually around three quarters of the way through the book, that's how I really know where I'm going and how it's going to end. You mentioned to me something about historical fiction and female characters, and whether it is uh, more myth-making about women or not. And I love that term, myth-making. Talk to us a little bit about that and what the question is there. Well, I think the problem is women are such an absence in the way history is traditionally taught. I think the assumption, unfortunately, the assumption has been that historical women just didn't do much because we don't see them represented in the history books. And that's flat out wrong. Um, but people believe it. And there's a strange idea. I blame the Victorians, honestly, that it's that Victorian idea of the angel of the hearth, where the women, woman sits in the parlor, and the man is out being a captain of industry. And this is really a mid-Victorian idea. Before that, families worked together. If you were you know, a, a middle-class woman and your husband ran a shop, you lived above the shop and ran the shop with him. And when he died, you probably took over the shop and ran it, even though you couldn't legally own property. If you were a lower-class woman, you farmed or did whatever else. And if you were an upper-class woman, I mean, Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire, who was the wife of a Whig magnate, went out and solicited votes for the Whig candidates. She also was involved in the family business, so to speak. And so this idea that women didn't do anything because we don't see them doing anything, I think is a very dangerous one. I think historical fiction has a lot of power to write those stories back in. So when I was researching Two Wars and a Wedding, 
I knew there had been Red Cross nurses in Cuba because I knew the real woman whose story I was tracing had signed up to serve with them. But when I went and bought all the latest monographs on the Spanish-American War, and this is recent, his, you know, recent um, historiography, there was no mention of them. One book had one line about Clara Barton showing up on the battlefield at San Juan Hill and the boys being like, Clara Barton is here, now we'll be all right, boys. But that's it, just that one line. And she made them Red Cross cider and everyone was very excited because yay, cider. But <laughs> although honestly, it was less exciting when I found out it was made out of dried prunes. So in any event, but that was it. And I was so confused because there's been so much written about the Spanish-American War. But, and I knew these women had been there, and where were they? And I had to go back to contemporary newspapers and to um, obscure academic articles to try to trace these nurses who had gone to Cuba with Clara Barden. And, but if you, if you read any of the standard history of the Spanish-American War, you just assume it's all men. There are no women in the picture. Actually, I, I gave a Women's History Month talk to my daughter's third grade class the week before last, and I showed them a picture, one of the classic pictures that gets reprinted in every textbook of the Spanish-American War. And it's Teddy Roosevelt and his men on horseback charging up San Juan Hill. And I told the girls, there's one thing in this picture that shouldn't be there, and there's one thing in this picture that should be there but isn't. Can you figure it out? And they actually, so they didn't figure out that the thing that was there that shouldn't have been there were horses. The Rough Riders, they were cavalry, but the war was so poorly organized that the army hadn't gotten enough ships to take the men across to Cuba, much less their livestock. And so the horses were left behind. And the Rough Riders, the cavalry, they walked. And they joked that they shouldn't be called Rough Riders anymore. They should be called the Weary Walkers because that's what they were doing. So all of these pictures that show them charging to glory on horses, that's pure fiction. Roosevelt had a horse with him. He had brought two, but one drowned when they tried to get him on shore. Um, and there was a, a, a mule that got commandeered by the, by the Rough Riders doctor who was like, hi, I need this to carry medicine. But that, the, no, no glorious riding on horseback with bugles blaring, of course the girls did figure out that what was missing from the picture were the women who had been there, who are entirely unrepresented. So the very long answer to your question is yes. I think historical fiction on the one hand has tremendous power to write those women back into the story, to put those nurses back in the Spanish-American War picture. I think the danger, however, is that we can create as skewed a history as the other kind, depending on how responsible people are or aren't. Mm -hmm. um, that I always put in authors uh, historical notes at the end where I try to explain what my sources were, what I changed, if anything, what I left out, and why I made the historical choices I made. But a lot of, a lot of historical fiction doesn't come with authors' notes. And you're left wondering, were these real people? Did they do what the authors said they did? And you know, depending on the author's research, you know, it could go either way. So I have, I think there's tremendous value for historical fiction as a tool, but I think there's always the caveat that it reflects our own preoccupations and desires as modern women, and we may be creating 
a past as false as the past we're replacing. Mm -hmm. There was a great debate in you know the cultural zeitgeist around the series The Crown. I oh, mean, yeah. how much were they adding, and how much were people learning history through that? I would argue that it's better than not learning any history, but. Well, and the yeah. hope is that it will inspire people to go and actually read about the topic and learn mm -hmm. something. Although, honestly, I do feel for some of the people featured in the crown right. who have come, <laughs> you know, apparently said, wait, I didn't say the things they said I said. Well, yeah, because now mm -hmm. they're living people. Yeah. So your life is amazing. So you have an undergraduate degree in history. You, you have a law degree. You have two children. You live in New York. You're writing all these books. Uh, inquiring minds want to know, how do you do it? Oh, goodness, I feel like I should be asking that question of you, because when I look at the list of things you're doing, I am amazed, and I want half your organizational power and energy. Um, I always feel like I am sort of always laying, you can hear the pattering sound of the balls dropping all around me. Actually, my, my husband just sent me a triumphal text this morning. My son's preschool class was going to go on a field trip to American Ballet Theater, and I was going to have, a, everyone needed one parent to chaperone, guess who was going to wind up going, and I got a text from my husband this morning, the ABT trip has been canceled, and there was, there was great rejoicing, because every little thing I don't have to do means something else I can do. Although, honestly, I think the hardest thing was during the pandemic, when I realized just how many support networks I had had um, and how much I took for granted. So when we went into lockdown in March 2020, my son was two and my daughter was in kindergarten and I had a book due in three weeks. And my husband did two things. He bought me an espresso machine, which he claims is the only reason I didn't murder him. And he gave me two hours a day out of his work day to finish writing my book. And so for those two hours, I would lock myself. He also bought me a lock for the bedroom door. And I would lock myself into the bedroom with my Nespresso and my computer and write a chapter in those two hours so I could finish that book. And it made me realize, A, actually how fast you can write if you're really caffeinated and really have no dithering time, but also just how, how many people I rely on to make the complicated juggling act happen. For me, it was a Roomba. It was a Roomba purchase <laughs> on Amazon that kept me from murdering my family. <laughs> I, I was in Florida in mm -hmm. March of 2020 with my husband, my daughter, my son-in-law, a one-year-old granddaughter, and three dogs. And because I, I am on the tidy side, and I'm probably <laughs> the only tidy person in my family, and we started to have dog hair tumbleweed <gasps> kind of rolling down the hallways. And I thought, I am going to kill somebody mm. until I got this Roomba. And I loved him so much, I named him. My Roomba <gasps> is a man. <laughs> he is named Orlando from the character. And, oh. But yes, there were those salvations mm -hmm. at that time that got us through. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House as we present their popular Ocean House author series with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Join WCRI each month on the third Saturday at 9 a.m. and Sunday at 9 p.m. as we bring you each of this season's author series 
Each program was recorded live and features nationally best-selling and award-winning authors, including Lauren Willig, Christy Woodson-Harvey, Patty Callahan-Henry, Katie Couric, and more. The series is hosted by actress and best-selling author of Ruby Falls, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. The Ocean House Author Series is a salon-style conversation that brings world-class authors to readers in the stunning seaside location of the Ocean House. Listen to the Ocean House Author Series with Deborah Goodrich-Royce each month on the third Saturday at 9 a.m. and Sunday at 9 p.m. only on Classical 95.9 FM WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. For me, I think I'm more of a sequential person than a simultaneous mm -hmm. do-it-all person. So I think we each have different ways, but you're definitely in, in the do-it-all category. Although I find I'm actually, I'm also, I'm sequential and I'm uneven. So I will, my writing process, when my husband and I started dating, I had already written 10 books. He was there for, actually no, nine books. And so he was there for most of the writing of the 10th book as sort of a new boyfriend. And he, he's a numbers guy. He makes a lot, a lot of charts. This is how his brain works. And so he made a chart for me of my writing process. From with one bar was days to deadline and one bar was pages written. And the chart looked like this. Whoosh. And sadly, that is not an inaccurate reflection of my writing process. I find I dither. I do a lot of thinking and rethinking and staring into space and deciding I wrote the wrong book. And then I write the whole book in a mad six-week caffeinated fit. But like you were saying about being sequential, I need those six concentrated weeks where my brain is on the book and nothing else, or I can't really do it. I can't work on other things at the same time. And I would add to mm -hmm. that, uh, certainly with myself, you probably need the time before of the thinking and the false starts and all the other stuff. I mean, there's so much that goes into what actually ends up on the page that isn't on the page, mm -hmm. that there's that crazy time factor. Right. I think my subconscious is so much smarter than I am. And while I think I am procrastinating or doing other things or working on a Team W book, my subconscious is busy working out plot problems mm -hmm. that I didn't even realize were going on back there. I also find that I need a gap between the research and the writing to get out of historian brain and into author brain so that my fictional people can take over and become real mm -hmm. as opposed to just being mouthpieces for historical events or excuses to share cool historical facts. Right, right. Well, we are at the moment for audience questions, which is always a really fun part. We've got one already. Yes, the question from the audience is, why did you go to law school? It's a very long, complicated story. I mean, part of it, uh, sadly, I think I was doomed from birth. It's like one of those evil fairy curses over the cradle. Um, because my family are mostly lapsed academics who became lawyers. So pretty much everyone in my family is a lawyer. Even both of my younger siblings are now lawyers. And my nine-year-old is showing alarming lawyerly signs. <laughs> and so when I went off to get my PhD in Tudor Stewart, England, there was a family betting pool on how long it would be before I went to the law school. And so I discovered my fourth year of law school that I didn't really actually love grading papers. I really did not love the student emails about how I'd ruined their lives by giving them a B plus. And I was also getting very annoyed by all of the guys I knew at the law school and the business school 
patting me on the head and telling me what a sweet thing it was that I was studying an easy thing like history. And I was like, do you have to be able to read 16th century Latin? Thank you very much. Um, and I got annoyed enough that I decided I would lob in an application to Harvard Law um, you know, down the block, and that if I got in, it was a sign from fate, I would give in to the family curse and go to law school. And if I didn't, I would try to tough it out, grit my teeth over the head padding, and be the best little academic I could be. And so I got in, and the plan was I was going to finish my PhD while doing my JD. But then, by a strange quirk of fate, my first month at Harvard Law, I wound up with a two-book book contract. And so instead of writing, finishing my PhD, I wrote three novels in my Pink Carnation series, which is its own weird, strange story. So that's how I wound up becoming a lawyer, because by the time I got that book contract, I'd already started. I'd bought all the textbooks, paid the tuition. I figured I might as well keep going. And also the whole patting on the head thing was still annoying me. And then I practiced as a litigator for a year and a half, really on the same principle that, well, I'd invested the time in law school, I might as well put on my suit and be Lawyer Barbie for a little bit. And so, but my, my entire law career lasted from 2006 to 2008. I haven't practiced since then. Oh, she's amazing. <laughs> the next question from the audience is, how do you take fictional characters and weave them together with actual history? I did a very brief, very unsuccessful stint on my school's newspaper in eighth grade and was basically told after a trimester, it's okay, you don't need to come back. The literary mag is that way. Because I had a really hard time reporting what happened. There were other more interesting things that might have happened or you know, things that sounded better. And so for me, I find it's what you said in many ways about the trial, it's the what if where you hear a story and think, but what if this had happened this way? Or what if you took this event and there's a gap in the story? What, what, is, what fills that gap? And I think that's how the fiction writer brain works, is we take something and then we keep on spinning it. We're spinning straw into hopefully gold, sometimes just more straw. But you know, when it works, it really works. And suddenly, you have this whole fictional universe arising out of a real one. So Alice McDermott has a new book called What About the Baby? Has anybody read this book on writing? And one of the things she says about nonfiction versus fiction has really stuck in my head. She said the nonfiction writer has to endeavor to include everything. That's the point, and that's the job. It's what you have to do. Whereas the fiction writer, the, the possibilities are actually infinite of what you can put in, so the effort actually has to be to limit it, and I thought it was a really fresh and true way of looking at it. Because you're sitting there in this imaginary trial thinking of all the things that could have happened, you have to pick at some point. Yes, and I find often writing is a process of narrowing. Mm -hmm. That often, I don't know if you do this too, but when I start a book, I have all sorts of side characters and subplots in my head, and often the book narrows as I write it because you just can't cram that much in. Um, and sometimes they drop out without my even realizing it. And other times it's really a struggle. I'll try to, so um, I wrote a book called The Ashford Affair that's dual timeline, present day, 1920s Kenya. And there was supposed to be a third viewpoint character and a third plot line that was gonna take place in World War II. And about halfway through writing the book, I realized it was gonna be war and peace length. And I had to drop that entire viewpoint, that entire plot line, 
and it just gets alluded to in a missing chapter that my editor made me cut out of the book, um, which is the only relic of that whole plot line that was supposed to go in there. And I feel like every, and, but the good thing about writing fiction is that when you finish the story, it's always the story it was meant to be. All the other possible stories are gone, and this is the way this story had to be told. And you forget, you forget the alternative versions of the book that you had in your head. Very well said. Another question we have from the audience is, do you do all your own research, or do you have someone that helps you do all the research? Well, I remember years ago when I was a little first-year grad student, I made the mistake of telling my advisor how much I adored Antonia Frazier's Mary Queen of Scots, and he sort of sniffed in that way professional historians do <laughs> when being told about amateurs who sell way better than they do. And he, he made a comment to me about how she was only as good as her researchers. And I hadn't realized that before, and it made a big impression on me that I hadn't realized she didn't do her own research and that you know her Mary Queen of Scots is incredibly in-depth. And But some of her books feel a lot lighter and that this was because it was the information she was being given. And so yes, I do my own research. I, you know, I read everything I can get my hands on. I go back to that old grad school training and sort of work following people's footnotes, finding the secondary sources, working back towards the primary sources, except with Band of Sisters, where really there was not much in the way of secondary sources and a ton of primary sources, but that was unusual. Um, the caveat, though, is I do have a magical librarian friend who I swear, I mean, she really is magic. Um, whenever I get stuck and can't find things, I appeal to my friend Vicki, and she finds me sources I had no idea existed. Um, so when I was writing The Summer Country, there are two timelines in that book, and one is set in 1854 Barbados, when a young English woman arrives in Barbados from Bristol for the first time, and I want to know what Barbados would have looked like in 1854 to an English woman who's never been to the Caribbean before, and my magical librarian friend Vicky found me letters an English woman visiting Barbados in 1854 had written home, and so I had all these wow. details, the things she ate, the things she saw, and what was weird to her, what an English woman noticed. And so it's just, you know, Vicki is my secret weapon. So do you live at New York Public Library, New York <laughs> Historical Society, all of those? I, are those your normal haunts? Well, I don't do terribly much with New York Public Library. I do spend a lot of time at the New York Historical Society, especially for this Manhattan Well Murder book. They were lovely enough to let me spend a lot of time wallowing in the collections they have there. I kept hoping I would find a letter from or to Hamilton that no one else has found before saying, well, this is why I took on this murder trial. But sadly, there was not. Um, so yes, I spend a lot of time there. Um, but a lot I do remotely these days right. because it's amazing what's been digitized. And I have access to a lot of archival collections through Yale College Library still, which has been a great perk. Um, yeah. So yeah, I do a lot more online than I once would have. We have time for one last question. Yes, the last question we have is, have you been to the countries where the books are set? Well, before I had kids, I did. I mean, it was a great excuse for a tax-deductible trip, where I'd be like, I'm thinking of writing a book set in Barbados. I'd better go there and research. And so I did, and got the worst mosquito bites of my life at the Historical Society there. But then, of course, I had kids, and my ability to travel was greatly curtailed. Um, I have found, though, the funny thing is, it really depends on the book. 
And for some books, going to the place makes a real difference. And for others, it's almost a hindrance. Because unfortunately, cities have a way of changing. People have the nerve to knock things down and build new buildings. And so I almost got run over by a moped in Paris when I was researching a book called um, The Orchid Affair, because I was looking for the Abbey Prison, which that vandal, Baron Hausmann, knocked down to build the Boulevard Saint-Germain. And there are a few remaining stones from the old Abbey Prison in the ground. And there I am being like, oh, it's an Abbey Prison stone. And there's traffic going around me both ways and people shouting at me in very colloquial French. And so if anything, in that case, I did much better not being on the spot. I did better working with old maps and accounts written by people who were there. But if I were writing something contemporary, and many of my books have a contemporary frame, um, then I need to be there because I need to see things as they are, as my current character would see them. But for the historical bits, often being physically there can be a hindrance because the landscape has changed so much. Actually, in some, depending on, for some things, even the climate has changed. And because, you know, of course, climate changes over time. And so what you're feeling may not be what your character would have felt. Well, Lauren, thank you. And thank you all. Thank you all so much for coming. It's been a delight to kick off this new season of Ocean House Author Series with Lauren Willick. And we will see you soon. So thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Please tune in each month as we'll bring you a new Ocean House Author Series highlighting nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation. Hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author Deborah Goodrich-Royce. The WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House to bring you this ongoing series highlighting the best and the brightest of the literary world. Thank you once again for joining us. And in the words of Margaret Atwood, in the end, we all become stories. <laughs>